Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Good morning to those in the United States and good afternoon to those in Europe. I'm Aaron Cadell and I lead GC's Washington, D.C. office. I'm pleased to be joined today by my colleagues, practice lead Chris Rinkus and senior associate Miranda Lutz, all of us in, in Washington. I wanted to first briefly introduce Chris, as this is the first of our client calls that he has joined. Uh, until January of this year, Chris led policy development and innovation at the U.S. Department of Education, where he worked for several years. Before that, Chris spent uh, nearly seven years with the Washington, D.C. public school system, where his last role was as budget director. Uh, Chris will be a generalist with Global Council, but we're very happy to have his expertise in education policy an industry that is obviously being transformed due to policy amidst the turmoil of COVID-19. So welcome, Chris. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing the first month, months of Joe Biden's presidency and taking a look at what's ahead for lawmakers in Congress and the administration. We have uh, in the U.S. Uh, heavy hearts a bit uh, these days, uh, not just because of the, uh, the continuing challenges of COVID-19, uh, but we've also, uh, as I'm sure everybody has seen in the news, uh, had two uh, mass shootings uh, just in the past couple weeks in Georgia and Colorado, as always seems to uh, plague our country in recent years. Um, and we are starting the the, the trial and the uh, the death of George Floyd, which sort of kicked off the uh, the Black Lives Matter post protests a year ago. So uh, those are happening in the backdrop, but uh, hope springs eternal. We have spring in many parts of the country. Here in DC, our famed cherry blossoms are out. Uh, and so we're all hopeful that this coming year will be better than the, better than the last has been. Um, so now that the stimulus bill has been passed, uh, Biden and Democrats are eager to, to move on to other aspects of their, uh, of their agenda, including voting rights, infrastructure, climate change. House Democrats have already passed a number of bills, including H.R. Uh, 1, which is a sweeping voting rights bill. And then, in fact, later today, just this afternoon in the, in the U.S. in Pittsburgh, uh, Biden's going to travel up there to, and that's a critical battle, battleground state, as many know, to unveil his infrastructure bill uh, that could have a price tag on the order of two, two and a half trillion. Uh, some details are just emerging about that uh, today, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but both these initiatives are certain to face Republican opposition. So the question is what Biden and the Democrats do in response. So Miranda, let's start with you. Um, how's the Biden administration stood up to Democratic expectations uh, early in uh, the term here? And uh, how would you, how would you grade uh, Biden's performance so far? Sure, so great question. Um, we're now about a little over two months into the, the Biden administration and both he and Vice President Kamala Harris campaigned on a very progressive and very ambitious agenda. However, they only entered into office with a 50-50 tie in the Senate. So I think that their approach in office so far has to be very realistic as to what they can pass and what they can do given the congressional arithmetic is a little bit tough right now. So given those dynamics that I think overall the administration has met expectations so far, uh, there was a slate of executive orders early on to undo some of the most um, impactful Trump uh, deregulator, deregulation agenda um, in environment, energy, and certainly in immigration as well. He's also delivered on just the very simple um, promise to act more presidential um, and to bring sort of regular order back to the White House. 
And then I think that the American Rescue Plan, which is the 1.9 trillion COVID stimulus package that passed, is going to be the, the, is the signature accomplishment of the administration so far. And that, that has largely met the expectations of, of Democrats. Um, while it is aimed at COVID recovery, they were able to, to include some of their other priorities, namely um, an increase in the, amount, in the amount of the child tax credit, Medicaid reform and expansion, a boost in public school education, which Chris um, has spoken about and you can read about on our uh, GC website, uh, his blog on that. Um, they weren't able to pass the, the 15 minimum dollar wage increase, but you can see that they have already checked the box on a number of their uh, campaign promises. So, and just the, the fact that the, the ARP, the American Rescue Package, is very popular amongst Americans. Um, it has approval rates as high as 76%, um, including over half, 52%, that strongly support the bill. So on the whole, that is a, a pretty good read for the first um, part of the, the Biden administration or the, the part so far. It's not to say it hasn't been without, without its challenges. Aaron, you alluded to, to them. You know, um, Gun control has certainly um, been raised as an issue. Again, the, the crisis at the border has challenged the administration. But I think overall, um, I'd give them a, certainly a passing grade, <laughs> to say the least. Sure, thanks. And, uh... Indications are that the ARP has been popular with Republicans as well, although surely a part of that is the, the $1,400 direct checks that are they're being sent to uh, to folks below below certain th income thresholds. But that covers uh, covers a lot of people. Uh, maybe turning to you, Chris. Uh, uh, let's let's dive into the the uh, the ARP a little bit. The the stimulus bill that was that was recently passed. Um, uh, what do you what do you think of the bill as you as you step back and what does it say about the uh, about the priorities of the of the Biden uh, Biden agenda so far. Uh, thanks, Aaron, and uh, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for the nice introduction earlier. Looking forward to uh, to getting to know everybody on the line and hopefully working together. Um, so the American Rescue Plan was successful, really, for two reasons. Um, first, it paid off a major presidential campaign promise uh, by President Biden, one that also featured quite prominently in the Senate runoffs in Georgia that ultimately handed control of the Senate to the Democrats. Uh, among other things, the ARP delivered more than $1,400 in direct payments to most Americans. Um, and it really gave President Biden and the Democrats a significant legislative victory within the first 100 days and provided seed money for many, if not most, of their uh, top priorities, including money for vaccine distribution, vaccine uh, COVID testing, and school reopening, among other things. The second reason uh, it was successful is that it really put congressional Republicans in a difficult position. Um, it illustrated that the Republicans lacked a coherent message. Uh, they were never able to mount any meaningful opposition to the bill, and in many ways showed that they are somewhat in disarray after the Trump years. It's difficult for them to criticize large spending bills after having abandoned fiscal conservatism to a large degree during the past four years. In general, <clears throat> the popularity of the bill, uh, the fact that it came packaged as COVID relief, when as many of its critics would claim the spending was not exclusively COVID related, uh, ultimately made it very hard to mount any sort of meaningful criticism. And although it passed on a strict party line vote, it remains very popular and polls consistently show um, that most Americans are supportive of it. I think 
long term, uh, the risk with the ARP is the same risk that we'll discuss with some other upcoming legislative efforts, which is the threat of inflation and the question as to how the markets will react to these high price tag spending bills. Um, although the Fed Chairman Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen have both discussed at length the need for economic stimulus to help combat unemployment, which remains high, and to get the economy back to its pre-COVID levels, um, there are concerns, credible concerns, that some of the spending could increase inflation, um, which would have uh, implications on interest rates and, and other economic uh, issues. Yeah, certainly, and I think we're uh, many people are watching not just uh, not just market participants are watching the move up in the the ten year U.S. Treasury yield uh, below one percent to end last year, and I think at last last check it said one point seven, so still low by historical standards, but a pretty big move up, and that's affected the equity markets here in the U.S., particularly uh, tech stocks and so forth. Um, sticking with you, Chris, um, what do uh, Democrats and Biden uh, turn to next now that the ARP? Uh, is is in the books. Uh, thanks, Aaron. Well, I'm I'm glad you asked because there's actually you mentioned you know breaking news this morning. Uh, the the president's infrastructure plan was released from embargo early this morning. He's planning to formally announce it during a speech in Pittsburgh, but many of the details have already come out, uh, and so I'd I'd love to describe it a little bit. What it looks like is uh, the Biden administration will take a a broad view of infrastructure. Um, and split it into two parts. So a traditional infrastructure package, and then a second, uh, more social welfare oriented package to come later. And today he will spend most of his time describing the traditional infrastructure package. It's uh, expected to be about two and a half trillion over the next eight years. That would be larger than the American Rescue Plan. Uh, I would hazard to guess that it would be one of the largest spending bills in American history. Um, and the president will also propose increases in the corporate tax rate and some other tax adjustments over the next 15 years to cover the cost. Although it's uh, intended to be an infrastructure bill, it looks as if today they will largely package it as a jobs bill, which I think is uh, an interesting approach, uh, likely to be appealing. You know, the, the U.S. is still experiencing higher unemployment than it did pre-pandemic. Um, and many of these spending programs, including the plan, should have uh, a positive effect on, on job creation. Um, it's been reported that Speaker Pelosi wants to try to pass it by early July, which would be a very aggressive timetable. Um, unlike the American Rescue Plan, which was based on previously written legislation, uh, the HEROES Act, Democrats will need to write this plan effectively from scratch and only have about six working weeks to do it. Um, and then ultimately passage of infrastructure will almost certainly have to be done through reconciliation, uh, although the administration and congressional Democrats continue to suggest they want to try bipartisanship. Um, just one or two other quick points here. So some of the top line numbers for the traditional infrastructure package include uh, over 600 billion for transportation with uh, nearly 175 billion going to the electric vehicle market, over 100 billion for safe drinking water, 100 billion for high-speed broadband, 100 billion for U.S. power grid, uh, over 100 billion for public schools and uh, institutions of higher education, and another 100 billion for workforce development. So really, this is a laundry list of uh, progressive priorities, and should it pass, 
taking this together with the American Rescue Plan, you're talking about an unprecedented uh, investment in um, you know, historically progressive uh, plans. And so I think if this should come to pass, you know, even though we're still talking about year one of the Biden presidency, he's making a mark that will last far beyond his first term. Yeah, yeah there's an old saying in DC, a billion here, a billion there, we're talking about real money. We've got to update that, 100 billion here, 100 billion there, and you're talking about real money. Uh, I think it also strikes strikes me that it uh, it's US, the U.S., although we hate to admit it, heading sort of in the direction of Europe of uh, of greater uh, sort of greater social uh, social safety net and uh, involvement in in uh, of the government in, in daily life, which is where we're all heading with with COVID uh, and with with potentially higher taxes. Uh, Miranda, back to you. Uh, you've you uh, worked on worked on Capitol Hill. You've you've been through the the wars on this. Um, what areas, if any, exist where, where Democrats and Republicans can really cooperate as opposed to the kind of nods to bipartisanship, which we're, which we're hearing so far? And I'm also just interested in your, your thought on that kind of January timeframe and what, what Pelosi maybe is really saying uh, in terms of timing for this, uh, for this infrastructure bill. Yeah, I think it's uh, going to be a tough road for bipartisanship. Um, although that was a big campaign promise for, for Biden and Harris, I think it's going to be probably the toughest one for them to deliver on. Um, the incentives for bipartisanship right now are just extremely low. Um, Democrats, I think, will make a show of trying to work with Republicans on the traditional infrastructure package, um, you know, roads, highways, bridges, you know, everyone has something in their district that could be fixed. So um, ostensibly, there should be room for, for bipartisanship there. But I am very skeptical that this will be a successful endeavor, uh, largely because when you bring in tax policy and try to fund um, infrastructure via increased taxes, you lose Republicans right after the bat. Um, I worked on the Hill through the, the passage of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and that was um, a little bit scarring to say the least, but tax policy is extremely difficult. Um, it's going to be a, a party line vote. Um, and I, I think that uh, you'll largely continue this bifurcation of, of policy um, where we see it's just going to be the, the Democrats roadshow for the next uh, year or so. And that's largely driven by the need for them to deliver ahead of midterms. Um, you know, the, the midterm races is, is coming up really quick and they're tight margins in the, in the Senate. Democrats did not win as many seats in the House as they expected, so they are potentially at risk of losing control of the House as well. And so they will want to make some impact ahead of that so that they can campaign on those um, reforms that they've done. Um, and then Maybe just, just, uh, just a, question on, a question on timing and particularly when you get into, get into taxes, we've already gotten some questions from clients about uh, whether tax, tax increases could be retroactive. Uh, just walk us through that sort of from July through to the end of the year kind of time frame and how uh, how uh, Congress will will negotiate those uh, the, those deadlines. Sure. So July is a very ambitious timeline. You usually see that these types of massive um, spending bills come out in the fall, or that's when they get passed. So you're looking at a September October timeline, um, and there will be debates throughout the summer on those issues as to whether or not the taxes will be retroactive, you know, how much are you going to, to change, um, what, if you're going to incorporate uh, SALT deductions, um, all of that will be fleshed out in the coming months. And I think right now, 
um, the approach for Democrats is to draw some lines in the sand, but not too many, um, so that they can work on, on fleshing this out. And you they're going to be passing this infrastructure package through budget reconciliation. So there are limits. You're not allowed to increase the um, US debt beyond 10 years. Um, and so that's where these tax measures come in. And so they'll be playing with um, CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, which determines you know, how much these bills are gonna cost. And that's what they'll determine how to tweak these numbers. Um, so the, the timeline you're looking at for this actually being um, you know, passed is going to be later this year in the fall ahead, like right before 2022. Got it, as our budget reconciliation expert, can you also just remind us um, uh, about the bird, bird rule? And there's, there's some talk about, we'll get into the filibuster in a second, but just before we get there, just to level set, uh, just remind us what the, the, the bird rule and the, the Senate parliamentarian sort of a 19th century relic of some ways that's, that's very important right now. Becoming um, the most that, important person in Washington <laughs> D.C. Um, so of the rules, the rules around that, and then yeah. Uh, the so budget reconciliation um, can really only pertain to legislation that is uh, either re revenue generating, um, so taxes, or that affects the the federal budget spending. And so it's very hard to change actual policy through this mechanism. So the way that you can get around this is tying all of the policy objectives that you want to make to some sort of fiscal or monetary impact, tax incentive, um, spending cuts, spending increases. But there is a very powerful person in the Senate and it is the Senate parliamentarian and under the Byrd rule, that parliamentarian can determine whether or not a provision in the budget reconciliation bill is actually germane to the federal budget. So they have kind of this very broad power to say what can and cannot be in the bill. And it's very hard to navigate that because it's just one person. There is some precedent that um, lawmakers and, and staffers can, can build off of to figure out what will be allowed to be included. Um, but it really is, uh, you know, you'll, they'll kind of throw everything against the wall and the Senate parliamentarian will determine what sticks. So there's another element of budget reconciliation is that you can only do it once per, per fiscal year. Um, and so uh, Senate my, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is working, um, potentially working some Senate maneuvers to try and allow them to uh, use this mechanism more than once um, per fiscal year, which has not been done before. Um, well, that's still being worked out, we'll see. I think it's far more likely that they'll get one more crack at this this year for, for fiscal year 2022. Um, and then potentially they could use budget reconciliation again in 22 for fiscal year 2023. Um, but uh, there's it's it's an exciting time. Um, certainly if you're the, the Senate parliamentarian, I'm sure that is a very stressful job right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and uh I think it's another reason why Pelosi's probably just putting July out there to kick it, you know, to get people up and running with with hopes of getting something done in the fall, because you'd have to keep keep options open to do reconciliation again, and the government's exactly. just starting starting start until start until October. So, all right, well, let's shift to the the filibuster. Another uh, vestige of a time gone by that has uh, become critically important uh, discussion around is it a, a way to to allow the Democrats to to reach the to achieve the ambitious agenda on which Biden uh, campaigned, um, but a hot button issue and has been for 
for many decades. So what do you think is going to happen to the filibuster? Is it, it reformed? Does it, does it remain the same? Uh, and give us some sense of the, uh, the current state of play with, um, with the discussions among the Democrats about it. Yeah, that is not an easy question right now, um, but a, a very important one. I think that there is growing frustration. Um, I mean, largely since uh, Republicans replaced uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, that the Democratic response will be to eliminate the filibuster. Um, that's tough to balance when you have key um, institutionalists such as President Biden um, in the White House who traditionally had been reticent to um, eliminate this filibuster. We saw in a press conference last week that he uh, basically opened the door to make changes to the filibuster. Um, and you have other moderate voices like Amy Klobuchar and Dick Durbin, um, uh, senators of Minnesota and Illinois respectively, that have also voiced their concerns that um, the filibuster will basically hamstring Democrats and make it impossible for them to pass legislation um, on other key Democratic priorities outside of infrastructure and jobs, namely voting rights, uh, racial equality, gun control. Um, and as you alluded to at the beginning of the call, Aaron, the, the recent shootings in Atlanta, Georgia and Boulder, Colorado have really reignited the gun control debate. Um, so far, we've seen uh, President Biden has very much stuck to his script of we got the ARP pass, now we're doing infrastructure, um, and he's not really being deterred from that, uh, that agenda, um, which I think is important to note because if you are going to eliminate the filibuster, or if Democrats are going to eliminate the filibuster, it's not likely going to happen in the, in the short term, and I mean short term in like the next six to six. Uh, six to eight months because the, of the focus on infrastructure and because there is a pathway for Democrats to pass that infrastructure package, that jobs package through budget reconciliation. Um, you know, traditionally, the majority party loses uh, 26 seats in the first midterm election. Um, and so that is going to be a very tough reality for Democrats if that holds true. Um, and so they will be looking to kind of campaign on successes through the infrastructure package, but then use perhaps voting rights and uh, racial equality legislation as the foundation for why more Democrats should be elected in 2022. Um, so if I'm putting on my Democratic hat, uh, that's what I think that they're they're thinking. And that's certainly what we're, we're hearing. Um, if I'm Switching um, back to the to the Republican side, um, you know they have issued some really scorching rebukes um, and saying that uh, if you do not if you uh, eliminate the filibuster, you know this will come back to bite you. Republicans will do the same thing that Democrats are doing and pass extremely conservative legislation, and you are setting up this um, potential swinging. Um, trend in policy where if the filibuster is gone, um, you know, every four years, every two years, you could get massive um, shifts in, in U.S. policy, which is traditionally um, quite slow to react uh, for better or worse. Um, and so that would make a, a pretty sizable impact on the policy landscape um, in D.C. In, the, in terms of the filibuster debate, there are two names that are probably the most important. It's um, Senators Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, and they have been the, the obstacles to, to filibuster elimination so far. 
Um, it's almost in their uh, personal uh, interest to, to keep the filibuster in place because then they remain um, as the two most important people and on, on Capitol Hill determining what Democrats Except for the Senate parliamentarian. Except for the Senate parliamentarian, yes, very, another very important role. Um, but they have a, a far greater influence over the direction of democratic legislation with the, the filibuster in place. I think that that, um, that line gets harder to hold if you have, you know, unfortunately more mass shootings or if you have more protests um, for, you know, racial equality and um, the outcome of the, the uh, case against Derek Chauvin will certainly be, um, you know, potentially could be one of those, those guideposts for how this plays out. So I, I guess that is to say that, you know, barring certain major events that could trigger a lot of pressure on um, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema. I think for the rest of the year, they'll hold the line on filibuster. If Democrats can see a pathway for eliminating the filibuster to potentially help them in 2022, they could do that later this year. But given that um, it's a tight timeline, even to just get infrastructure package through. So if you're just looking at um, time constraints, uh, you know, they can easily keep this conversation on the filibuster and other um, democratic priorities, um, you know, in the, in the zeitgeist while making actual progress on, on infrastructure. Yeah. yeah, it does feel like Biden is, he realizes that it would be crossing a major Rubicon that would be hard, you know, you couldn't go back. And I think Biden's, you know, major speech today in, in Pittsburgh, he's clearly saying, look, let's, let's pick this, this infrastructure, this Build Back Better plan and a big part of his campaign focus, focused on that. I um, want to be respectful of folks' time and maybe in the remaining couple of minutes we have before the top of the hour, uh, just want to turn, turn back to you, Chris, to, uh, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a good window into a given industry that's being affected by all this massive spending, as we, as we said, you know, tr trillions of dollars being spent, uh, more than 100 billion, that, maybe close to 200 billion of that is going to uh, the public schools, K-12 public schools, in the in the U.S., which is a, a, a huge number, um, obviously folks can uh, can read your note or, or follow up with with you to to talk about it. But can you just kind of hit the highlights of the, the ARP's impact on uh, public schools uh, in the U.S. and where uh, where you think uh, some of that money will end up in the next uh, year or next couple of years? Sure. <clears throat> Thanks, Aaron. Um, I I agree. I think K twelve schools is an interesting lens by which to view. The, the larger packages, because you're right, uh, K-12 public schools in the United States received uh, over $120 billion uh, in the ARP on top of another 65 to $70 billion uh, that they received last year uh, in stimulus packages. And so altogether, you've got nearly $200 billion. Um, that's just an unprecedented amount of federal money in the system in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, when we analyze the numbers, there's multiple ways to look at it, but you know, it's it's upwards of $4,000 per student. It's, you know, nearly 10 times what the federal government spends in an average year. Um, and when you start to break it up by state, I mean, you're looking at, you know, more than a billion dollars on average uh, for each state in the US. And so, you know, really the message has been uh, this changes the landscape for K-12 education for the foreseeable future. The Congressional Budget Office estimates the spending will happen 
for the most part over the next three years. And these school districts are going to be better positioned as buyers than they've really ever been in the past. Um, and I think you, you will see this across a number of areas. Uh, you know, in many ways, the, the most effective criticism of the ARP has been uh, its spending is not strictly COVID related. I think you see this here and elsewhere. Many of the most dire predictions from an economic standpoint didn't materialize. Uh, state and local revenues, for example, which fund many um, state and local services didn't decline to the extent that was once predicted. And so you not only have a huge infusion of cash, you also have economic conditions that aren't as bad as once thought and altogether, you know, really could prime some of these industries for a very quick and strong rebound um, in the later part of this year. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up there. Uh, thank you all for joining. Thank you, uh, Miranda and Chris. Uh, we'll mention one other event that we have coming up. We will continue to do these calls just with just with the GC uh, USA team here in Washington every every few weeks as as all the things that we talked about play out over the rest of this year. Uh, but uh, you should, uh, folks should keep an eye out for a call with uh, with Nick Mulvaney, the former chief of staff and uh, budget director for President Trump, uh, also head of the CFPB for a time during the Trump administration, about his uh, his reflections on serving in the administration, uh, his thoughts on on the current the current moment and and the start that that Biden has made and how uh, how the Republican Party will evolve. Clearly, that's another part of the story we didn't get into too much in this in this call, but is uh, but is critically important. Sort of the the pro Trump and anti Trump wings of the party sort of fighting it out. So that should be on or about April nineteenth or twentieth. So look out uh, look out for that. Um, so thank thanks all again. Uh, we'll we'll talk to you soon. So have uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.